welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Depending on who is doing the counting, it's estimated that between 26 million and 30 million people here in the U.S. have no health insurance. That number is more than the entire population of Australia. For some of those uninsured people, free clinics are the only way for them to get healthcare. Our guest today, uh, Stephanie Wilding, is CEO of Community Health, which is one of the largest volunteer-based free health centers in the United States. Community Health was among the first to get COVID-19 testing to essential workers early in the pandemic. In 2023, they're helping over 4,000 of the estimated 10,000 migrants who've arrived in Chicago since the first bus sent from officials in Texas arrived almost a year ago. Ms. Wilding will describe her organization's role in something called the free clinic movement that started here in the U.S. and Canada in the 1960s. We think the spirit of volunteerism that free clinics rely on has something to teach all of us at a time when so many working in healthcare feel so overburdened and are honestly leaving the field. Stephanie Wilding, welcome to Turn on the Lights. So Steph uh, Wilding, welcome to Turn on the Lights. Uh, delighted to have you as a guest. Maybe we'll start with the work you're doing now and then look back a bit. So you are CEO of Community Health and it is a free clinic. Nothing in life is supposed to be free. So can you explain a little more about- Especially not healthcare, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about what what is a free clinic and what does that actually mean to be free? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for for having me. And I think that's the number one question that I get when I tell people that I'm the CEO of a free health center. Typically perplexed looks on faces. And then the first question I get asked is also, how do you pay for it? So let me tell you a little bit about community health and have that really segue into how do you pay for it? So community health is the nation's largest free health center. So we provide not only primary care, in fact, we're primary care, but we're, we're a medical home. But we also have over 25 different specialty care services. We provide dental care, behavioral health care, and we have a full pharmacy. And we're able to provide this care for free through a really, I think, innovative and different business model than what you typically see in healthcare. It's three pillars. The first pillar is volunteerism. So we have over a thousand volunteers who make our mission possible, including the bulk of our providers our lab workers, triage workers, as well as our interpreters. Our second pillar is philanthropy. Like any nonprofit, we're raising dollars. And then our third pillar is partnerships. And this is where we're able to partner with, for example, medical training programs and education programs to place residents and med students in our clinics, but also to partner with large corporations to be able to provide free medications, free lab services in order to keep the overall costs down so that when we raise that philanthropy piece, that's really what's paying for a lot of the work and the rest is provided through in-kind goods and services. So in- insurers aren't involved at all? You don't bill insurance companies? We do not bill insurance at all, no. And the patients pay nothing out of pocket? Nope, the patients are charged nothing. Patients can give a donation if they feel inclined to, but there's no sliding scale fee and they are not charged one cent at Community Health, which as you can imagine as a patient, our front desk actually spends a lot of time having to explain to a patient that they don't owe money, that they will not owe money. 
And it is a consistent message amongst our new patients that there's just a disbelief that this is here for them and that they're getting really great care as well. Steph, what's the scale of this thing? So what uh, you mentioned a thousand volunteers, but how is this a single center? Is this a multi-center institution? Is Are there you know, what's the size? How many people do you serve? I'm amazed that you can do this. So tell us more about the size and the number of people you're serving. Community Health has three sites total. We have one health center that's a traditional health center building that you wouldn't expect to see. And then we have two what we call micro clinics, which I'd love to talk more about because I think it's a really interesting innovation. So we have three sites total. We serve over 4,000 unduplicated patients a year. So in Chicago, you're, right? You're in the Chicago. Yeah, just in Chicago. Yeah, exactly. We're Chicago-based. And so if you're familiar with, say, a federally qualified health center, we're, we would be considered like a smaller federally qualified health center, but we're a very large free health center. Got it. And you're providing primary care, obviously, but you mentioned specialty care as well. So can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, what what's the scope of service you can offer? You can't hospitalize people, but you can take care of them from their basic primary care needs and some of their specialty needs? Or? What's the scope of services you offer? Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to specialty care, the scope of services is vast. I worked in safety net care my entire career, primarily in what are called federal qualified health centers. And when I've worked in those spaces, it's been really challenging to find access to specialty care because the financials don't really always make sense. But at community health, because our providers are volunteers, we're able to provide a wide array of specialty care. For example, on chronic disease management, we have endocrinology, we have nephrology, we have cardiology. We also offer a wide array of access to neurologists, including some subspecialties in neurology. Last year, we launched a sleep clinic. And while a lot of this is rooted and based in our primary care home and that specialist being with us, because of that third pillar in our business model partnership, we're able to work with a lot of the hospitals to ensure additional testing and diagnostics are provided for free. And of course, work with those hospitals when and if needed, if a patient does need to be hospitalized, ensuring that we can assist that patient through any charity care applications, et cetera. So that from point A, which is community health, to point Z, that that care remains free. And who uses your services? Who are your patients? Our patients are primarily uninsured folks, some, almost all of whom are immigrants. So our populations that are served are going to be both individuals who are uninsurable in some cases, and also those who are in the first five years of their applications to become citizens, and they're not yet eligible for Medicaid. We also see patients who are enrolled in a state-based plan that is specifically geared towards undocumented immigrants called Health Benefits for Immigrant Adults, Health Benefits for Immigrant Seniors. And we do provide care for those patients if they have that coverage, but we do not bill for those services. It just to dot one eye, uh, you mentioned if you're a legal immigrant in the United States, you come here you have no income, you're very low income, you're not immediately eligible for Medicaid support. Is that right? There's a waiting period. Yeah. And the first five years of your application to become a citizen in the United States, you are not eligible to enroll in Medicaid, which means you could be here with documentation, working a job, potentially low income, but paying taxes, and yet you're not able to apply or be in a Medicaid program. And so you remain uninsured typically in those first five years. Doesn't sound very logical to me. Let people get sicker and sicker before we start to actually provide coverage for them. Hmm. 
I, I'm actually Sorry. curious. That's I, like a longer podcast. <laughs> there, there are some states that are trying to change some of this. I know uh, California at least is trying to allow for coverage for undocumented individuals. I don't know if Illinois is trying to do the same. Maybe that provision you described, but is there a move afoot nationally for some kind of, or is it state to state what's taking place right now in terms of covering those that don't have a legal immigration status yet? Yeah, it's definitely state to state. And California, I think, is doing some amazing things. I think a lot of states are also taking action to get waivers from the federal government to allow their state-based marketplaces to allow undocumented folks to purchase plans through that. Illinois, I think, has taken a, a little bit of a different route in through budgeting processes over the last few years have developed this program that's completely state-funded called Health Benefits for Immigrant Adults, Health Benefits for Immigrant Seniors. And in Illinois right now, there's actually a lot of controversy around this because unfortunately, due to a myriad of reasons, it was underfunded in the budget year over year. And so that program's actually currently going through some cuts as of Friday. Some cuts were announced by the governor in order to keep costs under control. Um, and that is the reason why community health continued to provide care to these patients, even if they had HBIA or HBIS, which is the acronym we use for that program, because we were concerned that it may be one day and we didn't want folks to have to shift around their medical home um, and, and be able to keep their care with community health, um, even if they had this state-based plan. And it turns out that that was the correct bet because we are seeing cuts to that program. At the same time, you're seeing a surge of demand. I understand a, a lot of immigrants have arrived in Chicago sent courtesy of Texas. Is that right? That is correct. We've received uh, about 10,500 migrants from border states since August in the state of Illinois and specifically Chicago. And you and community health are trying to meet the needs of a significant proportion of them? Yeah. So the last two months we is when we've actually received a major surge of migrants from border states. And in Chicago, how that has been um, handled is that folks are being filtered through our police precincts first, and they have been housed at police precincts across the city as they await beds at temporary shelters. Um, over the course of the last few months, it's ranged from anywhere to 450 to 1,000 people sleeping on floors at police precincts before being able to move into temporary shelter. And so community health in the last wave, which was August, really August through November, we had really served a primary care model, come to our health center if you are needed of care. And But this wave, the last two months, happened much faster and the needs have been much more significant. And so the city approached us and asked us if we would be willing to um, provide health care in the precincts to folks. Um, and again, we have a primary care model. And what that really means is we kind of typically stay in our bricks and mortar for the most part. But this required us to do a really big pivot pretty quickly. And so from the time the city asked if we could do this until the time we were out in the precincts, set up a street medicine operation in about 10 days and have been going out to the precincts now for six weeks and providing healthcare on the ground in the police precincts across the city. And uh, I think this is a great example of where free health centers are, are able to quickly adapt and change to honestly urgent needs in this case, 
I think it's always interesting when I sh- have shared this with my colleagues who work in other spaces in healthcare that we set up a street medicine operation in 10 days. It's alarming because that's not typically, unless we have a global pandemic, the clip at which healthcare moves. And so community health has been on the front lines. We have been able to provide um, some really basic medicine, a lot of point of care testing, including rapid tests for flu, for COVID, for strep throat. We've been able to test for urinary tract infections, for pregnancy. We have point of care glucose, um, we're taking blood pressure. Uh, we're also able to give out a lot of over-the-counter medications um, for pain, with your ibuprofens, your Tylenol, your lidocaine patches. But we're also providing some oral gel because we're seeing a lot of dental issues. We're giving out allergy medications, allergy creams. I mean, Steph, you've taken us into something that I think is a terrible and disdainful period in our national story at the moment. You've actually, in your description of what's happening to folks that are being bused places, we hear about that, we read about it in the newspaper all the time, we see it on TV, uh, people being bused from a border state to somewhere else. You're giving us a picture of the life of the people that are being bused and some of the health needs that they have. So I, I guess a, a, qu- a question for you is around who's supporting this service? You're providing this street medicine outreach team on an emergency care basis to people in police precincts and uh, you're doing this for free or is somebody paying for it? I mean, how's this working for you? We are leveraging our business model. So the team that we're sending out is comprised of about 50% of volunteers, including our providers that are going out. We are leveraging donations, both in-kind goods. As you can imagine, the needs of folks are significant, anywhere from kiddos needing gym shoes to clothes, um, menstrual, menstrual products, et cetera. So receiving in-kind goods and services and, and raising dollars where we can. But we are doing this because we were asked to and because it's the right thing to do and because we can. So all those things are true, I'm sure. And yeah. you know what's coming <laughs> next, which is a question about whether this is durable. I, this is amazing what you're doing. Thank you for doing it, first of all. I think we should all say that out loud. And I don't know how you continue. I'm curious about the long-term viability of this, seeing as though, unless the busing should stop and this ridiculous situation should end, we hope. hope. But even if it were to end, there'd still be a plentiful number of undocumented individuals in the country that need care. And so that issue is not likely to end anytime soon. So how on earth are you going to sustain this effort forever? I guess is a question. This sustainability question for me is always an interesting one, which I get a lot. I get a lot. And I, what I always like to also frame for people is that I don't know a safety net provider who would consider themselves to be sustainable forever. Safety net healthcare across the board, whether you're a free health center, whether you're a federally qualified health center, you're a safety net hospital, you are hanging on often from time to time or sometimes always by your fingernails. And so I always challenge the premise of the question that because we're a free health center, it doesn't mean we're less sustainable. It's just how we sustain ourselves is a little bit different. But every safety net provider is out there hustling for your dollars. So in a federally qualified health center, that's going to mean that you are managing your payer mix very closely to ensure it is not going above and beyond where you've budgeted. You're managing your provider's output, like you, your life depends on it. You're managing what you would consider, or what I've considered when I've worked at a federally qualified health center, an underperforming provider who's not meeting expectations because that's your bottom line. So community health is doing the same, but just how we're paying for it. And one of the things that 
I have found to be true is that, well, one, community health is not new. We've been around for 30 years. And so we've sustained this model for some time. And I feel pretty confident in our ability to do that for 30 years and beyond. It's just, we're going to be leveraging in-kind goods and services as part of our sustainability which I am finding, especially the in-kind services, there's a lot less volatility in that than there may be in payer mix shifts out of a redetermination process, which is what people who are in Medicaid have to go through annually and often can lead to major shifts in payer mixes, health centers. So I know that's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's a completely different way of thinking. And for one, that I've had to challenge myself as well because I have worked in more traditional Medicaid billing and counter-based models. And this is just a different way of, of sustaining our services that isn't dependent on them. So are you a unicorn? I mean, is this like one of a kind or, or is there, or have you got a lot of sibling free free health centers around the country or how, how big a deal is this? Well, one, I feel obliged to say that at Community Health, we do call ourselves unicorns. So I know the staff will want to make sure that I do say, yes, we are unicorns and there are more. Community Health is not the only free health center in the country. There are over 1,400 free health centers throughout the country providing care to just over, I think, 2 million folks across the country. And the thing that I talk about with free health centers is that, one, we serve as a key pillar in the safety net, but there's also a lot of ways that because of how we're funded and because of our models, we are able to really fill in the cracks and premises that exist within the safety net. So it may not be a systemic change all at once, but we are making sure that we are filling in where there may be gaps. And at community health and other free health centers, when an uninsured patient walks through our doors, they're not considered unfunded because our business model is built to support the care for that person. And that is often not the case anywhere else within the safety net. There, there is a financial burden when someone doesn't have that form of insurance. And so until everyone has a form of insurance, free health centers serve a really important role because the more people we provide care for, the less financial burden that that places on other entities in the safety net. Steph, how do people find out about you? I'm curious about this because there's a certain probably volume above which you couldn't sustain the business. Like there's a, I, I, actually, I'm curious, maybe there isn't one, maybe there's no upper limit to what you can provide. I don't know. But if you became incredibly popular and people started flooding your doors, Don and I have both worked in uh, contexts and settings outside of the United States where we've had long queues waiting outside of our doors, waiting to be seen by clinicians and providers. We couldn't handle the volume, right? Like the, those clinics were not designed because they were covered in a similar kind of funding model uh, or structure, which is philanthropically cobbled together, volunteerism, uh, et cetera, partnership. It's exactly how Partners in Health, a place that Don and I know very well, operates its work outside of the United States in part. I guess my question for you, is there an upper limit to what you can provide? And how do people understand what services you offer and how do they find you? Yeah, I think what's interesting, and we certainly experienced this during various parts of the last three three years, being a free health center during the pandemic, we were caring for some of the most vulnerable communities who were at the highest risk of getting COVID, particularly in those first six months. One of the things that we learned that I think addresses part of your question is that we're actually able to ramp up access more quickly than I've experienced in other settings because of that volunteer piece. If we can find that willing person who is qualified and able, then we are able to onboard them much more quickly than you, you would see in traditional healthcare settings. 
So that's really allowed us in the last three years to be able to move with that balloon of typically surges and be able to, to keep up with the demand. And we're actually seeing that right now with the migrant crisis here in Chicago. Our um, two micro clinics that are located out in the, the communities where a lot of these folks are being housed temporarily, they reached over capacity within just a few weeks. Um, but we were able to tap into existing volunteers to have them add clinic sessions. They were able to begin to recruit some additional volunteers who are going to be coming in the wings here soon. And we've added a few extra days um, of access and that sort of thing. And so it's, again, going back to that, that, that business model is that it does lend itself to taking action a little bit more quickly. And we've certainly found that to be true and having to respond to the various surges dur during the pandemic the last three years. And I think people hear about community health the way that, in my experience, has always been the case, which is worth it. It is somebody who is telling, it's that transfer of trust from one person who knows that we're a safe, high-quality place to receive care and telling another person to do that. And um, I would say, I think it's 98% of our patients would recommend community health to a friend or family member. And so that continues to be how most individuals find out about us. In addition, our microclinics that we have in the communities are co-located inside of community-based organizations that are addressing patients' social determinants of health. So food access, childcare, legal assistance, housing, et cetera. And when one of their staff people in one of their programs says, hey, we have a health center here, it's called Community Health, we're gonna go ahead and refer you to, to them. That's another referral resource. And I think that's where Community Health has really leveraged its reputation in the last couple of years by connecting with these larger groups who transfer that trust from them to us to so that people know that this is a safe place to seek care. What does a microclinic look like? You said you wanted to say a few more words about it. Yeah, so our microclinics are they're a concept that we're really, really proud of. In the first few months of the pandemic, like every healthcare entity, we pivoted overnight to telehealth. And I just want to add that at that point in March of 2020, I had only been CEO of Community Health for 100 days. And so it was a time when we were making a lot of changes. And particularly because of my newness, we're wanting to document everything that we were doing because we knew things were changing so rapidly. We wanted to adopt a growth mindset. And one of the things that we saw when we pivoted to telehealth so quickly was that our no-show rate plummeted. And a no-show rate is the rate at which your patients don't attend their appointments and they don't call up to cancel. They just don't show. And we saw a plummet almost 10% overnight. And really in large part because of my newness, we started asking ourselves why. And as we explored this, we listened to patients. What we realized is that community health at that time had one physical site. And yet we served patients from every single zip code in the city of Chicago. And actually, one of the communities that we have the greatest concentration of patients, it's 80 minutes one way on public transportation to our clinic. So that's an exorbitant barrier that anyone would have to overcome to seek care. But for somebody who has an hourly wage, or may not have childcare, this is a really big barrier to clear. And so at Community Health, we started asking ourselves the question, what would it looked like if we started to meet our patients where they were rather than requiring them to come to us. 
Part of that is telehealth, which we certainly have continued as part of our model of care. But the other piece is that you need doors in the communities where people live and work. And, and so that's what we did. And we also knew we wanted to do better at addressing social determinants of health. So we opened up clinics. They're about a thousand square feet or less where patients can receive both in-person primary care as well as what's called an assisted virtual visit, which just think about it as a telehealth visit. There's someone there to help you get online and get set up and make sure that you can connect with your provider. Patient can get lab services there. They can pick up their medications. Pretty soon we're going to be launching behavioral health as well. And what we're finding at those community in, the, in these micro clinics in the communities is that door in that community is it's working. It's, it's providing an access point. Patients are reporting that it is more convenient, that they wish to receive all their care there. In fact, they want to receive more of their care there, which is why we're trying to expand service offerings. And after two years of having our first one open, we've been able to track health outcomes. And we can share that the health outcomes for patients served at those microclinics are on the same high quality level as those who are served at our, our anchor headquarters location. So we opened a second microsite just about a year ago, and this time on the, the southwest side of Chicago. And we're seeing the same reception in that community that we did in our first location. And in fact, we're seeing patients in those communities who have a lot of needs, who have been out of care for a very, very long time. Steph, you're reminding me of someone we met at IHI some years ago, Brian Stevenson. And when he, he came and spoke at our big meeting at IHI, and he that described this idea of getting proximate to any problem you see or any community that you see. And the way you're describing the evolution of the micro clinics is, is a way of getting proximate to communities and building relationship in a new and different kind of way. And what you find when you go is you, you learn a lot about what people need and want in those environments, I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we opened the micro clinics because we wanted to rethink space and place for point of care to meet our patients where they were at. Yeah. But I also think since opening, the the really big takeaway has also been that when we're talking about building equitable approaches to to care, what what if we explored the idea that in historically disinvested communities and in under-resourced communities, what if they only had to travel a few blocks to access all of their healthcare needs? Right. right. And we we and we um pointing to myself, the healthcare sector removed, not just reduced the barriers to access, but removed those barriers by investing in those communities, by going to those communities, by setting up shops and setting doors in those communities. And to your point, all of the other things that we learn that are needed from that proximity. It's clear that you uh, have a great deal of passion and energy and and love, frankly, for this work. It's uh, pretty exciting to hear. I, I'm curious about you and what's brought you into this and what's called you into the work that you're doing. It sounds like you've been in the FQHC world for a while, but I, I'm curious about what's called you into this into this work, which seems like very much like a calling. Yeah, my entire life, my dad has said two things about me. The first of which is I'm his hummingbird on speed which is where the energy comes from, so <laughs> like this since birth. And two, that he's always said that I rooted for the underdog, which I really interpreted as since I was really young, when I saw something that didn't seem right or unjust, I just would do something and be an action taker. But I, I think for me, for my healthcare journey, 
it really came together. You know, after undergrad, I had started at a federally qualified health center. And a number of years before that, I had lost my younger sister to, she'd been murdered. And it was a few months after I started at this health center that I learned more about the person who took her life. And what I learned about him was that he came from a hardworking middle-class family. And this is before the Affordable Care Act. And he suffered from severe and persistent mental illness. And his family did everything they could to try to get him care. But the safety net failed him. And in failing him, my sister lost her life. And so this was just a few months after I had started in healthcare. I was meant I was going to go to law school. And I realized that there are millions of people every day being lost to the safety net. Mine is a much more indirect case, but I still see the connection. And we see it every day. We see it in in people foregoing preventive cancer screenings and have getting later stage cancer diagnoses. The safety net is fragmented and broken. And maybe if it hadn't been, my sister would be here and this man could have had a long, fulfilling life instead of spending it in prison. And so people, I think, want to don't often know that about me, but once they do, they understand the urgency of how I move of how I operate because, and this is a, a colleague of mine who said this the other day, who works in health equity out in California. And she said, people are dying in cars and parking lots. Like we can't, we don't have time. We don't have time to wait for things to happen. We need to take action now. And so that's where my calling comes and what I'm rooted in every single day. Um, and when you think about how healthcare operates in this country, there's just so much work to be done. There's so much work to be done and I'm just going to keep doing it. And that's really my calling and why I do what I do, but also how I do what I do, which is with a great deal of passion and urgency. You honor us with that story. Thank you for sharing it with us. And um, uh, we're grateful to you for being part of the solution finding that we need here in this country. I know uh, there's lots to be done here, but we really appreciate what you've started. Don? Yeah, so sorry what you and your family had to go through, Steph, but you're really making a big difference, a big difference here. What, how big could this get, uh, this idea of um, whatever's inspiring the free clinic? And I'm thinking about the bigger picture here, not just beyond the free clinics. Like, what have you learned through your experience of leadership in this amazing endeavor? that you think we ought to take as lessons into the larger healthcare system, which is in such distress right now? What, what, what can your experience teach us, do you think, from the free clinic movement? Yeah, I think so. a lot of the lessons that I've learned in being in a free clinic, I actually think healthcare in a lot of ways learned as well the last few years during the pandemic and operating under a public health emergency. I think I am not a clinician, so I do want to indicate that, but I do think that sometimes we overthink things in healthcare and that there is a low-tech or a work smarter, not harder solution. When we have launched street medicine very recently, we're not talking about an elaborate van that we've outfitted that is amazing. We're talking about a, a suitcase of medical supplies, a wagon with outreach supplies and materials, and some really strong volunteers and staff people. 
And that may not revolutionize street medicine care across the board, but for the hundreds of people we provide care to, it is transformation. And that same goes with our micro You're not going to see a thousand people in one day at that clinic, but the 25 to 30 people you do see, it's going to transform their overall wellness over time. And so I think that would be the other piece is those small impacts over time and with do lead to, to, to large impacts. And it's really funny. I was just, I was actually just thinking about this question last night and like had journaled a few things about it. And those were some of my takeaways. But I also think that, and I recognize the, in some ways, the privilege that I have at bring, being at a free health center, because as a leader, I am able to be free of red tape and bureaucratic systems when thinking through solutions to problems and also being able to lead those solutions and lead them. And I think that in the last three years, we've seen many moments where healthcare was able to get past bureaucracy of the systems. Just take the vaccination rollout across the country and was a, which community health was part of, but so were hospitals, so were federally qualified health centers. We got shots in arms and in an incredible manner, an incredible way. And I think one of the, my wishes, I think, for healthcare is that we don't forget what we've learned the last three years and how we can move quickly, swiftly to meet the needs of people. And how do we, not only free health centers, but the entire ecosystem, allow that to remain in our thinking processes and our decision-making as well? So the simplification idea, don't we make things too complicated. That's something we should think through a lot more. The other thing is, though, you 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 seem to have tapped into this, into the volunteerism, the generosity out there that's inspiring. Is it realistic? And also, could, is there like one volunteer you want to just tell us a little vignette about somebody that gives us an image of the kind of people that are helping you out? Yeah, but gosh, there's so many actually. <laughs> and I think that's what's really unique is because you can have a triage worker who may not have a lot of clinical background, but we help train them up. And you might have an interpreter who's located in another state. Um, and you also might have our providers. So I'm going to shine a light on a couple of our providers, um, one of whom is Dr. Allison Arwady, Chicago Department of Public Health Commissioner. Um, Dr. Arwady has been with Community Health for 10 years. She has only taken a break twice in those 10 years in her service to community health, once to fight Ebola. And the second time, very briefly, though, was during the COVID pandemic. And Dr. Arwady is with us several times a month. She's actually providing care at one of our micro clinics. And she takes that experience and she brings it back to the health center with her. And it helps to inform the work that she does across the entire, excuse me, health department. I would say the other person I want to talk about is our sleep specialist doctor, Dr. Uh, Fiala. He just is doing amazing things. So he leverages his relationships at hospitals to get our patients into sleep studies. And he also leverages those relationships to get donated CPAP machines and then also 3D print CPAP masks so that patients have custom-fitted masks that are that we're able to produce for them for free through those relationships. And I think those are examples of the scrappiness of a free health center and the leveraging of our various 
pillars of our business model, both through volunteerism and through partnership. And I got asked this question today, if there, that we are largely funded through heroism, right? People being heroes, whether they're giving their money, they're giving their time, they're giving things. And is there a limit to that? And I don't know the answer to that, but I am an eternal optimist. And so I don't think so. I don't think there's a limit. And I think the day that there's a limit, it hopefully means it's because everybody has healthcare and people don't have to be heroes. I mean, there's a couple of final questions here, but that we usually ask as, as we end our conversations. But I have one burning question that's been, I've been thinking about this whole time, but not, I hadn't, until you started talking towards the end here, I hadn't formulated it. And it's really about what you think of as the role of the free clinic going forward. So in, in some ways, we're in this situation that we need your service because I would argue that our government is not fully stepped up to the responsibility of caring for everyone who's in our country. And so my, my question to you is, do you want growth of free clinics? Should we have more of them <laughs> or should we have fewer of them as our public sector actually takes more responsibility for providing better care for people? What's your sense of the trajectory here? Should we have more of what you offer or, or in the future, should we have less because we have a, a better role for government? Yeah, I think should and need are really important things to define in this question. Should we be having more free health centers and should community health continue to grow, for example, its microsite model? No. But do I think we're going to need to? I do. I think particularly in Illinois, which is where we're based and focused, we're seeing a significant increase in migrants. So some of whom are going to be able to get some health benefits or health insurance through a short-term plan, some of them who won't. We are also anticipating that a lot of people are going to lose Medicaid coverage through a process called redetermination, which is an annual renewal, which no one's had to do for three years. And while the state of Illinois has made attempts to try to provide health coverage, I think health coverage also doesn't equal access. Um, not everyone accepts Medicaid, and we certainly saw that. And we're now seeing that program being scaled back already just three years into start. So I think there is absolutely a need. And the role to me of free health centers is the more space we're able to take up, the more we're filling those cracks and crevices that exist in the safety net. And for me, I see that if an unfunded person walks into my health center and I can see them, I'm built for that. I'm built to see that person who is a financial burden on other health entities in the safety net system. And so when I can see more people, that means I'm supporting a safety net hospital. It means I'm supporting a federally qualified health center. It means I'm actually supporting large academic medical centers as well because I'm keeping that person out of their emergency department for unnecessary and expensive care. So do I think we should be expanding? No. But do I think we need to in order to provide this vital service and to support the other entities in the ecosystem? I absolutely do. Well said. I, 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 you've heard that question before, but I appreciate you. I appreciate your answer here. Uh, Steph, if someone wants to find you in community health, or please tell us how to find community health, our listeners, but also if someone's not located in Chicago and wants to find a free clinic near them to volunteer at, to support in some way, how do they go about doing either of those things? Yeah, so to find Community Health, our website has all the ways that you can get involved, whether that's donations, volunteerism at communityhealth.org. 
And if you're interested in getting involved in any free health center throughout the country, you can visit the website of the National Association of Free and Charitable Clinics. Right on their homepage, they have a find a clinic. You can enter your zip code and find a clinic near you. Great. The National Association of Free and Charitable Health Clinics and communityhealth.org, two places to go if you want to know more about how to work at Understand Free clinics and potentially support one. We ask one final question in every interview, which is about your barometer on an optimism to pessimism scale. You know the landscape, you're working in the trenches, you're taking care of people who are coming off of buses um, in possibly the worst uh, situation that they've ever experienced. What's your sense of, are we headed in the right direction as a country? Are you optimistic about our future or do you feel more pessimistic about it as you look out? That is such a loaded question. <laughs> but, um, I am an optimist. So I there's the side of me that's, that is optimistic. But do I believe that at the end of my lifetime, I'm going to look around and every person in this country is going to have access, easy access to high quality, hopefully free, but at least affordable health care? I don't know that that's going to be the case. But do... I feel optimistic about the impact that I'm going to make in my lifetime and that so many other advocates are going to make in their lifetime to move that needle to make it a little bit better. I do. Well, Steph, we are so grateful to you and Community Health for what you're doing and for the model you're setting for so many to follow, we hope. Please, listeners, go see communityhealth.org and visit with our colleague, Steph Wilding, from there. Thank you so much. It's so great to have you on Turn on the Lights. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Steph. Well, Kadar, something about this uh, story of free clinics leaves me agape. It's almost, it is a unicorn, as she said, I think. Here we're in a country, we're talking about inaccessibility and prices through the ceiling and insurance complexity. And she just tells this simple, beautiful story about, well, come here, it's free. It's almost unbelievable. Yeah, it was the other day I was at St. Jude Research Hospital, pediatric cancer hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and they have a wonderful goal of, of treating every child with cancer and trying to improve cure rates. But right under there uh, about us is a little thing that says a patient will never see a bill from us. And I thought that was the unusual comment, you know, on some level the curing pediatric cancer on some level feels like the solvable problem in American healthcare, whereas the never sending a bill part sounds like the almost uncurable or unfathomable problem in American healthcare. But yeah, she's out there, Steph is out there trying to solve this problem in a in, with a pretty different kind of solution than most people are really talking about. Yeah. Patient will never see a bill from us. To step into really thin ice here, of course, I've been studying other countries for many years and that is one characteristic of the British National Health Service that I've talked about uh, and often been criticized for talking about. But my daughter was actually in England with her son, my grandson, a couple of years ago, and he had a suspected problem. And they took him to an emergency room and took very good care of him. And they were about to leave. And she said, well, where do I, where um, do I pay? Where do I pay? Where do I, hey, where do I go? <laughs> and they said, have a good day. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Have a good day. It's... It sounds weird, but gee, you know. I but the thing that I wonder about this, and I asked it towards the end of our interview, is about whether this is a solution we want or not, right? Is Do we want more of community health or do we want less of it because our public systems and frankly, we start to express more responsibility for the health of the whole population that lives within 
a country's borders. And the situation that you have in the UK or in Canada, even closer to home, is a government in a society that said something quite different than we've said here in the US about health. And to me, the story that you offer about your daughter's situation in the UK is exactly a government stepping up and saying, we should guarantee the health of the people that live or even come to visit us, uh, which is quite different than what we're saying here. We're saying instead, let's rely on a patchwork quilt of volunteers, uh, which is pretty stunning. And I was actually quite taken with the comment she made, which is that the, the reliability, what she seemed to be implying was that the reliability of a stitched together network of volunteers was greater than her belief or her confidence that the public sector would step in and help. Yeah, reliability and agility. I mean, her comment on when you take all the complexity away and just decide to do it, they're able to move. They're able to move remarkably fast. Yeah, I thought your question to her about this was great, frankly. And it's like, you don't want to have to need them. But on the other hand, I remind you, your question reminded me of something I heard from one progressive politician. I can't remember who it was, who said that government is the name we use for the way we do things together big things together. It's the, the idea we have government so that we can carry out our intentions as a society. And if our intentions society is a patient will not see a bill from us, yes, you can do that through the volunteer apparatus. It is not out of the question to do that through public policy that recognizes healthcare as a human right, full stop. I thought she answered that question very deftly in saying, should we have this? No. Do we need it for now? Absolutely. I think she's probably right about that because lots of people would otherwise suffer and, and maybe even lose their lives as her tragic story described, were it not for the support community health is offering and providing. How she, like so many others we've met, converted a terrible personal tragedy into an intention, a will to act, a real sense of duty is it's a remarkable part of the, the human story. This idea of a free clinic is one other point that occurs to me. It, it's basically doctrine, canon law in economics, that free goods will be overused. You know, you, mm -hmm. you have pricing so that it's the way we limit uh, skin in the game. Awesome demand, you know? no, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yet, I don't know. I'm not an economist, but time and again, I begin to hear stories of, well, it's your right to have this. Come and take it, which is really what she's saying. And you don't see demand crashing the structures. Uh, no, it, it's giving people something that they ought to have and frankly would probably rather not have to use. So I think we have to do some more inquiry about this uh, market-based theory and in, in healthcare is the answer. I was interested in that idea. That's kind of why I was trying to get at with the question around is our, what's the way that people get to know about you? And there's a way in which the distribution, the communication around this actually limits the number of people coming to the doors, right? Yeah, the, it's word of mouth. It's from one person to the next. You're not going to have gate crashing coming. It's just not going to have the degree of spread of the information is going to be limited to some extent. And you might not have the demand that there probably is for such a service, right? The actual need for the services that community health provides in the Chicagoland area is probably vast outstrips the capacity to provide it right now which again, to me, is the argument for a stronger public response. There, this is just not, I don't know that you can meet the true need that's out there with the patchwork built. And it would otherwise require reliance on some, uh, you know, this term that I've grown to 
be a little bit cautious around our heroism of the workforce. Like, I, I don't know, without proper structure and system, you will exhaust the, the very volunteers that the system is relying upon. So I don't know. I'm a little more skeptical of the possible. Again, I'm glad that she's doing it and I'm glad community health exists because she's right that without it, a lot more suffering would be taking place. But is it something that could help for the long run? Or is it the final solution here? I'm not so sure. I don't know. Meanwhile, I'm glad she's there and uh, it's inspiring to listen to her. But we've got a lot of fixing up to do in the mainstream system. And that's why we have this podcast. So uh, Indeed. we'll keep at it. Very good. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much, Don. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org.